ready to get started again today. So I want to welcome you for episode four with uh, our guest speaker, Dr. Fazia Hassan. I'm Dr. Mohan Dutt. I'm joined by Drs. Alok Suchdeva and Dr. John Barkham. Before we get started, we just wanted to take a moment to pay our respects to someone who is seminal in the field of sleep medicine. Um, so the field of sleep medicine suffered a great loss recently with the passing of Dr. Christian Guimano of the Stanford Sleep Medicine Center. Dr. Guimano helped sleep helped to make sleep medicine what it is today. He was the first to describe the obstructive sleep apnea syndrome and was one of the co-founders of the journal Sleep, among many other contributions. Two of our colleagues, Dr. Ronald D. Chervin and Dr. J. Andrew Burkowski, had the good fortune of working with Dr. Guimano at Stanford, and we would like to take a moment to read beautiful dedications they wrote for Dr. Guimano. Alok, you want to get started? Sure. Uh, Dr. Ronald Chervin, former president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and interim chairman of the University of Michigan Department of, of Neurology, wrote the following. He wrote, Dr. Guimano played a fundamental role in the establishment of sleep medicine as a recognized specialty. His extraordinary mastery of existing literature, fascination with everything related to sleep, and keen sense of what data were needed to move the field forward made him an academic powerhouse. One of his greatest assets was an uncanny ability to gain insight from his clinical experience with patients. Often this insight would be years ahead of its time, creating opportunities for research to prove his clinical hunches. Finally, CG, as he was known by friends, was nothing if not dedicated to his trainees. He spent many hours on a daily basis over several decades to teach future sleep physicians and sleep investigators from this country and many others in a colorful and memorable manner that would remain the highlights of many careers for years to come. The recent loss of Dr. Guimineau represents a truly sad moment for the field of sleep medicine. However, his central contributions to its foundation will serve the interests of its patients and practitioners far into the future. I'll now turn it back to Dr. Dutt for the dedication written by Dr. Andrew Burkowski. Right. So Andrew, uh, Dr. Burkowski is one of our sleep medicine faculty here at the University of Michigan, and he um, had the good fortune of being able to train under Dr. Guimano at Stanford. He wrote the following. Beginning when I learned of Dr. Guimano's remaining days in this life when his health was too poor to carry on as a teacher in sleep medicine, each time I have read studies of fellows, I am reminded of and humbled by the unmatched depth of knowledge, experience, and skill by which he was able to teach all those in sleep medicine who had the privilege of being trained or mentored by him. In those moments, I feel like I can retransmit only a fraction of what he taught me. It is likely that there, will, there has been and will be no sleep physician who will have read more studies or seen more patients than he. The absence of his vast knowledge of sleep, including neurobiology, upper airway anatomy, and respiratory physiology, combined with his clinical experience, is a tremendous disruption to the field of sleep medicine, and certainly there will be a portion of his knowledge that is lost to history now. However, until his last few days, he was always the first to arrive and the last to leave the sleep center. With a lifetime of dedication to reading studies, seeing patients, teaching fellows, and writing research publications. Because of this, I'm at the same time relieved that much of his brilliance will carry forward through the summation of experience, 
of the countless he has trained and the writings that have captured a career's worth of his, worth of his ideas. C.G. will be remembered as the ultimate sleep physician. Thank you to Drs. Chervin and Burkowski for sharing with us their memories of C.G., which will also be posted on our website, www.thewhitenoisepodcast.com. We would like to conclude with a moment of silence for Dr. Guimineau, a teacher, clinician, and scientist who helped shape the field of sleep medicine and whose work will continue to improve the lives of millions of people for years to come. Hey, shall we get started? Yes. All right. Alok, do you want to introduce our speaker for today? Sure. Yes. Um, Dr. Fauzia Hassan is with us today. It's an honor to have her here. Dr. Hassan is a uh, <clears throat> professor of sleep medicine at uh, um, Mott Children's Hospital. Uh, and yep. and um, also uh, pediatric pulmonary medicine. So she uh, brings both of those uh, areas of expertise to our podcast today. And it's great to have you here, Dr. Saad. Thank you for yeah. the invite. Yeah. I really Faz appreciate it. Yeah, we're really, really excited to have you here to talk about something that John Alok and I both don't really deal <laughs> with in our, in our normal practices, which is pediatric sleep medicine. Um, obviously, we did this in training, but we're all adult physicians, so some don't. of us have boards coming up again. That, so yes. I think, I, unfortunately, well, yes. Do we yeah. all? Do we all have boards coming up? <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah. Yes, again. Right. I was supposed to be out of the business by the re certification. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so, Fazia, before we kind of get into the the actual presentation or the actual cases, um, we'd like to take a little bit of time to get to know you. Sure. And so, the first question we have for you is: Give us a one-liner about yourself, kind of. Doesn't have to be related to medicine, just to help us get to know you a little bit. Oh, it's so not related to medicine. Okay. So <laughs> I don't even consider myself as a physician half the time, or let's say 90% of the time. The moment I step outside is like mother first, wife second, physician way down the list. That's how I see myself. Um, Sometimes, yeah, I guess I go to work and then I come back home and the reality sets in. <laughs> and my kids bring me down back down to earth very, very quickly. Yeah. And yeah, so All wife right. and mother. Nice. All right. Um, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? It was from my program director. And it, it has carried me through all the time. There are two pieces of advice that I always, it was trust but verify, which hmm. I do this time and time again. And then the other thing was, which he is very good at, and I, carry this to myself. And I was all, and my English is not rotten here. This is actually, as you grow older, you grow more stupider. So never take anything for granted. Mm -hmm. um, and I have said in medicine, never say never, because you, when you think you've seen everything, something throws you for a curveball and you're like, yep, now seeing this. <laughs> I think that's really true. We yeah. get burned a few times. Yeah, and absolutely. That exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's that can't do that anchoring that we, oftentimes do because right. when you least expect it, I think that you're bound to be surprised. Exactly. So, um, and then lastly, this is kind of our fun topic. What is, um, we call it the pick of the month. So what's something that you're just really into this month, book, TV, movie, oh. anything? Oh my God. I saw the, what was the Avengers movie? What was it? The end game? Endgame. Endgame. Oh my God. I saw it. <laughs> the whole movie was good, but hated the ending. <laughs> Has everyone seen it? Spoilers, <laughs> I not, spoilers. I have not, I have not seen it. For all the people who have not seen it, 
Not going to tell you, but did not like the ending. <laughs> I think no. you're the first person I've heard say that. Really? Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh my God, they should have, ch- like, I'm zoning out here. I don't want to know. <laughs> I, I might have shed a tear at yeah. the end. So. Yeah. I was like, okay, I, I could, uh, they could have changed the ending somewhat. <laughs> They could not do that. Right. <laughs> could not deal with that. Oh. Is it like as bad as Game of Thrones where they told me, people told me don't watch the last season. Oh, <laughs> you know, I love Game of Thrones. So <laughs> we won't go there. Okay. Yeah. Right. Don't go. Don't go there. Um, all right. Alok, John, do you guys have any picks? I'm reading the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's intense. Ah. It's, it's nonfiction. So what is that about? It's about the uh, Soviet Gulag. <laughs> Like how they just spiraled out of control into like death camps for like 50 years. It's crazy. That wow. is sounds uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> you never read about I never learned about it in history. So it's interesting. Good. I don't have a pick this month, you know, uh, kind of the, the, the usual going on so okay. uh yeah nothing uh you're having a rough month then nothing yeah stand out i guess maybe the heat wave can i pick the heat wave <laughs> yeah. sure you can pick the heat wave <laughs> i have a vision of you like sitting in front of a fan sweating that's it with your dog in her lap yeah <laughs> yeah bella's doing well she's weathered it pretty yeah. well yeah, yeah. Oh. all right we'll, we'll have to put the plug in again at the beginning where we skip that we say hey anyone yeah, skip yeah, the banter? Skip, yeah exactly <laughs> um and my my pick um is is a podcast called uh, Hardcore History. Um, usually, I pick a TV or a movie show, but I've been listening to this uh, this podcast by Dan Carlin, and it's like a deep dive into historical events. So I listened to the one on World War One, and again, uplifting. Um, it was like twelve hours on World War One, and really just getting into like how it all got started and. You know, it's not like each battle, but really like the psyche and the mindset behind both the Axis and the Allied powers. And it was really good. Um, and he, he, he has a bunch of them uh, for different historical events. So definitely recommend checking that out. Mm-hmm. Do you cool. guys realize I'm the only one who watches like trash stuff? No, no. You guys are all serious. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> usually, I, usually I pick something really. <laughs> this is in between YouTube videos and yeah. watching like office clips, you know. My wife makes me watch this show called 90 Day Fiance. <laughs> oh my God, we were talking about that today. Yeah. <laughs> See, that was discussed while reading sleep studies. So. Oh, yeah, right. it was totally discussed while reading. We were like, I think we lose a couple of gray cells. Yeah, exactly. watching those. It is. It's, uh, yeah. So that's that. Uh, <clears throat> we can edit out that I said that. Yes. Later. Yeah. We don't want any. <laughs> People will think less of me. <laughs> All right. Um, John, you want to you wanna start reading the case? Sure. So we have Cecilia Papp, a four-year-old girl with trisomy 21, is brought to a sleep clinic by her mother for evaluation of restless sleep. The clinical interview reveals restless sleep and rare, soft snoring that is most prominent if Cecilia has an upper respiratory illness. Her mother has never witnessed apneas, and Cecilia seems to be appropriately energetic in the morning. Her mother has not noticed neck arching during sleep and denies loud breathing. Cecilia tosses and turns during the night and, quote, it seems like she's not able to get comfortable, end quote. So, you know, our first question, I guess, is, you know, what does what strikes you about this case as being important? So I think these are pretty typical symptoms. So one thing you have to remember is snoring is not a great predictor. And there are certain populations where, and popu- uh, when I say populations, there are 
two types. So if children have hypotonia or low muscle tone, and we kind of divide it into two, if they have what we call neuromuscular disorders, if they're weak uh, with their muscle tone, like kids with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy or spinal muscular atrophy, they are not able to have the palate vibration to snore. Or if they have syndromes such as trisomy 21, trisomy 18 or 13, they don't have the muscle tone to be able to snore. So parents may not notice snoring as the biggest sign for obstructive symptom of obstructive sleep apnea. What most people think is they see this 50-year-old guy on TV who you can see snoring downstairs, and that is what obstructive sleep apnea is, which is not true for pediatrics. So most of the time, kids have pretty soft snoring, and it may not even be heard outside the room, which lulls parents into thinking that if they don't hear the snoring, there is no obstructive sleep apnea, or he doesn't snore like my dad. Well, soft snoring can also be a sign. Most, um, and then pauses in breathing can sometimes be there. Sometimes it can be normal. But the lot of things that we ask parents is how restless in sleep are they? Are they more than what you would usually think as a child or are they hot and sweaty sleep? So this is a pretty typical presentation for a child with trisomy 21 is soft snoring. And then the other thing in teenagers, we're hoping that the parents are not hovering in their room or co-sleeping with them. <laughs> and so if their room is very far away from them, they may not hear their teenagers snoring. So that's the other population that even normal, healthy teenagers, the parents may not hear them snoring. Huh. Is like, is, is this presentation enough for you to say, you know, I'm going to go ahead and order a sleep study to evaluate for, for sleep apnea, just based on kind just, of these symptoms? Right. Yes, absolutely. And one of the guidelines for the American Academy of Pediatrics is if trisomy 21 uh, children have not had a sleep study by four years of age, they should have one oh. as, as a screening, regardless of the symptoms. Because it's so prevalent in this it's population. So, it's a very high prevalence in trisomy 21, just because they have um, airway obstruction at multiple points in their um, airway, as well as hypothyroidism is so prevalent. Mm-hmm. in that population. So it's a important screening tool. So even if they have mm-hmm. lack of symptoms, it's recommended that they get a sleep study. Is there any reason that the trisomy 21 population really, it's more important to screen? I mean, is there, are they more prone to other, you know, poor outcomes um, in related, you know, in relation to sleep apnea, as opposed to a, you know, a four-year-old kid who doesn't have uh, trisomy 21? So they have a lot of congenital heart conditions, uh, pulmonary hypertension. Um, they do have a, they have other congenital heart conditions like um, atrioventricular septal defect or unbalanced AVSD. So the other defects that they have, they have, as I said, hypothyroidism. Um, they have, uh, sometimes they can have central sleep apnea because they have the um, atlanta occipital um, dislocation. So um they have hypoventilation because they have lower muscle tone. So they have other comorbid conditions besides this. And since a lot, a very high proportion of them have um, pulmonary hypertension, it brings to mind that you always should screen for obstructive sleep apnea since that can, if treated appropriately, have an impact on pulmonary hypertension. Would you say loud breathing or mouth breathing during sleep in a child is important? Should a parent 
look for any of those things or? So mouth breathing, uh, nasal congestion, sleeping with your neck arch, sleeping in funny positions, Mm -hmm. being really hot and sweaty at night, waking up multiple times and multiple times is what is age appropriate. So for an infant, it may be that if they wake up a couple of times at night, that's pretty normal. Mm -hmm. But if a teenager or an older child wakes up multiple times at night, that is decidedly abnormal. Mm -hmm. And we call it obstructive sleep apnea syndrome because it is also daytime. What are the behaviors that incorporate into the syndrome? So children can have snoring, but they could have daytime behaviors associated with it. Most children are not sleepy. They get tired and wired during the day. And we kind of have to remember that unlike adults, they they have a different response to their sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Tired and wired. (laughs) Yes. Um, Should we go on? Uh, I guess I just have one more question about like the pulmonary hypertension. Um, I know when I was, uh, when I was training the, I was taught that um, these these kids should, or trisomy 21 kids should have an echo every year. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that correct? Is that like in the guideline? I don't, I don't know if it was a guideline thing or if that was just kind of what they practiced at. I think that's what they practice. It just depends. Sometimes it's very difficult to get echoes in this population, depending on how still they would no, stay. Um, I think some of the centers use echoes every year, depending on what their underlying cardiac condition is. Uh-huh. If it's an unbalanced AVSD, then I'm guessing if it's a small ASD that is closing, it just depends. Some of them actually do it every alternate year. It just depends on what the underlying, if there is, if there is significant, um, if there is already underlying pulmonary hypertension, then I think they try and get it every year to get, get an idea on where they are at, um, in terms of their right-sided pressures. Um, so I think in, in them, it's a little bit more frequent. They'll do it every year, but if there's absolutely nothing, then they'll wait. Is the, um, is the diagnostic criteria for, um, in the pediatric population for pulmonary hypertension, the same as it is in the adult population? I mean, so on an echo would be like RVSP greater than 35 is kind of what you're, you know, obviously the echo is not the gold standard for diagnosis that would, you know, have to do a right heart cath, but mm-hmm. I mean, that would suggest that you have pulmonary hypertension. It's pretty or- close. Um, I'm not a cardiologist. I don't want to put words, but it's pretty close. Pretty close. Okay. Yeah. All right. But for like, in, in this, you know, it sounds like obviously for, there's such a high prevalence for, you mm-hmm. know, sleep apnea and kids with trisomy 21, you screen. Mm-hmm. Yep. But in like normal children, you know, we're, we're talking um, any sort of like fragmented sleep at, at all at night is is not partic- not particularly. They may not snore even for healthy children. They may not snore. Exactly. Okay. Uh, or you may not hear them snoring. They may snore, mm-hmm. but it may not be a symptom that you would necessarily pick up mm-hmm. because you're not in the room with them. And then the witness pauses, though, like in adults, it's more specific for sleep disorder breathing. Is that the same case with children or is it yeah, it's still kind of it can still be within the realm of normal so okay. children will have some pause in breathing after a deep breath so mm-hmm. it i think what i see as more indicative of obstructive sleep apnea if they have snorting or gasping sounds at night that's a big tip off for me okay um and then the other one is bedwetting so after oh. a certain age if they like if there's a huge family history of bedwetting then you can kind of predict that they should get better but after age eight or nine if they have still prevalence of bedwetting when other family members have been dry, that's mm-hmm. one thing we screen for. Um, or if the other family members have been dry by that, I mean, they haven't had a history of bedwetting and the child 
continues to bed wet by eight, eight or nine, then that's a tip off and say what else is hmm. um, can be underlying an obstructive sleep apnea is one of those. Because most kids do not, most children do not wake up because they have very deep sleep. So they're not the ones to get cues and use the restroom. They will have bed wetting. Hmm. Hmm. But even to the, so to the parents of a child with trisomy 21, even in the absence of any symptoms perceived, mm-hmm. age four, sleep Get study. Get sleep study, yep. yep. And the other thing that is very typical for trisomy 21 children, which is I, it's very interesting, is they sleep in a tripod position when they have obstructive sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. They hunch over and sleep, which is mm-hmm. something very unique to this population. Hmm. Um, so Cecilia Papp, has in, uh, had increasingly frequent temper tantrums, getting back to the case, during the past three to six months. Her mother is having difficulty managing these. Uh, Cecilia has been babbling in her sleep on some nights as well. And there's not a strong suggestion of restless leg syndrome or insomnia. And Dr. Hassan, you touched on this already. Any other commentary on behavioral issues in children with obstructive sleep apnea? So children with obstructive sleep apnea, for the most part, are not sleepy, unless until it's very severe and they're more in the adolescent. They get tired and wired. So as the day goes on, they'll have meltdowns, Uh temper tantrums. Parents will come and tell us, I never thought this could set my child off, but it seems like very small things will start having a meltdown and they'll start crying at night. Sleep talking and sleep walking or night terrors can happen as a normal part of sleep, but it becomes very frequent. Then you start wondering, can there be anything that is disturbing their nighttime sleep that can make these events a little bit more frequent? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the things that can happen. How often do you get in your practice someone brings in a kid that's just a brat? <laughs> 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 I'm, it's got to be sleep apnea. It's not, <laughs> can't, I, can't, can't be my kid. It's got to be a problem. Yeah, it's right? got to be a medical problem. I think so. When the article came out, I think it was Ron Sherman's article and a Karen Bonnock about like the whole ADHD and obstructive sleep apnea association. Yeah. We got a flood of referrals. And I think what we have to kind of counsel parents is if it's severe ADHD, obstructive sleep apnea can be a part of it. Uh-huh. But it's not the complete picture. Right. So you kind of have to keep that in mind. Huh. And we see a lot of children with behavioral issues in our behavioral sleep medicine clinic. So it's not always medical. There is a behavioral component to it. And there's a lot of uh, behavioral modifications that have to be done towards daytime behavior issues, as which can impact nighttime sleep as well. Yes. So you can't always beha- uh, expect obstructive sleep apnea to magically... All of them will have obstructive sleep apnea or to treat obstructive sleep apnea and magically daytime behaviors will also get better. And are you seeing a lot of comorbid like insufficient sleep in the pediatric population nowadays mm-hmm. as we are in the adults? So especially among teenagers. Mm. Um, and this is one thing we always talk about is you cannot expect your body to be staying in, in the Eastern time zone on one day and then staying in Hawaii the next day. <laughs> this is what I tell them is like you're expecting yourself to fly to Hawaii over the weekend and come back to Michigan the next day, which is not possible. These are some high flying teenagers. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and then the summer they'll go to sleep at three o'clock in the morning and wake up at one in the day and then boom, school year comes and, and parents come and tell us, well, they're sleeping in the morning and they can't get up. And, and then you want these teenagers to drive to school. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is not a, it's dangerous for them. It's, um, it's unsafe. Um, and it's dangerous for other people on the roads. Mm-hmm. And then it does impact the learning and behavior. I mean, we've seen time and time again, the National Safe Foundation has done studies. Um, CDC has done studies where high school students, a significant percentage of them get less than eight hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, 12th graders, last CDC study, what was it? Like 75% of 12th graders got less than eight hours of sleep. The recommended is nine hours. That's what first hour is for. Yeah. Exactly. Go to sleep. Right. That's what I yeah. mean. So, I mean, very often we are like, yes, uh, extracurricular activities are important, but the, you have to balance it out. What would you prefer? Sleep or extracurricular activities? Yeah. I remember for me, it was busing. That was the issue, right? So, yeah. like, the, just the way the busing worked, I, had to, I got to school at six, yeah. but class didn't start till 730. Right. But that's when the buses were mm-hmm. able to run so they could pick up, like, mm-hmm. pre, you know, like, first grade or like middle schoolers and stuff like that. So then you're just like up at five o'clock for no reason. So, Mm -hmm. um, prepping you for the real world. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Prepping me for residency. Yeah. Um, I guess kind of getting back to the behavioral aspect, how difficult is it, um, in the pediatric population to kind of get a, to get a good behavioral history, I guess, cause sometimes kids just can't endorse anything wrong. Maybe that's normal for them or they don't think anything's wrong. Or they don't I, have the vocabulary. Oh yeah. They just, yeah. Is it, are you going solely based on what the parents telling you at that point? It is. And that's true. One of the things about pediatrics is you're reliant on the parent history a lot. Um, and the parents will tell you it's sometimes it's difficult for first time parents to actually get a sense on what is abnormal versus normal. Um, but they'll tell you compared to the other peers, there's a lot more meltdowns uh, that they're noticing or compared to the older child, this younger one, to me, is having a lot more crying episodes than what I'd expect. Mm. Or um, so we always say, okay, compared to your other children in the family, what do you think this child is doing? Is he sleeping through the night? Is he not sleeping through the night compared to the other ones? Or compared to the other cousins, um, what is your child doing? Mm-hmm. So you kind of get give them some frame of reference yeah. to kind of go on. Um, and I think that sometimes is helpful. Um, and the other thing is compared to the peers in school, when you're picking up your child from school, are the ones that are literally like melting down and crying? Those are, I think, good. And some of the children are actually pretty verbose in describing some of the things um, and how they feel. And then how useful is the physical exam for you on the, in, you know, obviously it changes with mm-hmm. the kids growing older, mm-hmm. um, but is it? Helpful, useful. I mean, not, I mean, I, I assume seeing grade four tonsils, you're like, yeah, I got it. Right, exactly. But like, tell me how that goes. So if you see huge tonsils, like three or four, then you have a starting reference. Or if you see like a premature child kind of growing up and you see a very high arch palate, you're like, eh, maybe. Or a um, small jaw or very recessed jaw, uh, then you're also we are seeing a lot of obesity in the child in the childhood population now which is mm. significant um and we have to counsel parents a lot even if you're seeing like three plus tonsils and obesity we have to counsel parents even if you take out your tonsils and adenoids which is typically the first line treatment mm-hmm. that there is a pretty high chance that you'll still have obstructive sleep apnea or the obstructive sleep apnea may be more severe so mm. those are the things we have to be like yeah there's a higher probability so we're still stuck having to examine people. 
I yeah, telemedicine. I don't think I'd use uh-huh. that for my very first visit. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of to piggyback off John's question, um, and get back to the case a little bit. What physical features in a patient with trisomy twenty one kind of predisposes them to, or what specific features you know to or that are uh, special for you know trisomy twenty one patients predispose them to to obstructive sleep apnea. I think the first one is the mid-phase hypoplasia. So they have the flat nasal bridge. Um, a lot of them will have prominent tongue. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's another big gimme. Um, very, a lot of them you'll hear about like poor muscle tone um, mm-hmm. or hypotonia as we call it. So that's another one that means you are having upper airway collapse. And then on top of that, if you have huge tonsils, then that's like a big predictor for us. So mm-hmm. Then, you know, and then some of them will have high arch palate if they were premature. Um, so those are multiple sites of obstruction that you can get. Um, they typically don't seem to have a small jaw per se, but it's mm-hmm. the tongue that seems to be more of a prominent feature in them in the mid-face hypoplasia. Touching on obesity, uh, and- again, such a problem in children, mm-hmm. unfortunately, at least in our country. Because it's so common, do you refer to a formal weight loss program or a dietitian when you see that in some in a child with sleep apnea, or do you advise certain lifestyle dietary adjustments to the parents? So this is one of the huge problems we have with our healthcare right now is the parents don't have access to a good weight loss program. Yep. We had an excellent program here at University of Michigan called Empower, mm. but the wait list, I don't know if they're still running or not, but um, the wait list was very long. Um, and I think it was attached to another program. And I don't think they're, uh, I don't think they are accepting patients right now. Mm-hmm. It was a comprehensive six month program and it was three to, three or four times a week they would have to go there. Um, we have encouraged them to go and, the problem with our, um, we are tertiary care centers. A lot of the parents come from far away. And so when they, they're not able to come for nutri- uh, dietary services or seeing a dietitian here to our center. And so when they go back to their local <laughs> pediatricians, they don't have access oh. to it. Yep. Regardless, we always counsel them and please go back to your pediatrician and talk about healthy choices. Your child is overweight or obese. It brings up higher risk for obstructive sleep apnea being residual or um, if you lose, and we always tell them, if you lose 20% of your body weight, there's a chance of obstructive sleep apnea will get better. Not that it will resolve. And we actually give them, this is a tw- this is what your weight amount is. So you have a goal right. to lose. Right. But that is a huge problem with our healthcare system is they don't have access to those resources. Yep. I mean, how many pediatricians in the community have access to a dietitian or a nutritionist? The minority for sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. So this so this patient, Cecilia Papp, um, with trisomy 21, features suggestive of sleep apnea. You'd order a PSG, presumably, for mm. this patient um, with CO2 monitoring? Yes. That's a that's a standard of care. Yep. Yeah. For just for all children? Mm-hmm. Okay. Under the age of 18. Okay. And are there reasons other than it hasn't been tested enough to not do a home sleep apnea test on a child with a high risk or pretest probability for obstructive sleep apnea? So 
we actually publish guidelines, ASM guidelines on home sleep apnea testing. So there are a couple of reasons why it's not recommended. And I've been asked this question from very angry providers. Huh. It's like, why can't we do this? Um, because I, we all get it that sleep studies are not readily accessible in the community. But there are reasons why home sleep apnea testing is not recommended among pediatrics. And there are very good reasons why it's not. Um, one of the things is home sleep apnea testing does not, does not come with EEG capabilities. Most of the pediatric um, events, when you look at the sleep studies, it's with arousals or awakenings. It's not necessarily with desaturations. So you would miss a high number of events, and they have been head-to-head -head studies in which they have done that. There are a couple of studies that did home sleep apnea testing, but they had EEG capabilities. Those were more closely matched to the in-lab studies, but we don't have EEG monitoring at home. The ones without EEG monitoring missed high proportion of, in fact, missed by large values or underestimated the severity of OSA or missed it completely. Hmm. The other thing is, um, Children yank off stuff off their faces all the time. If you have kids, you know that they will pull stuff from their nose if you place it there throughout the entire night. <laughs> I would like to have one parent tell me that if you place something on their nose, that their child did not pull it off. And if you do that at home, who's going to place it back? And that nasal pressure signal is one of the more sensitive things to, even in the lab, they pull it off and the techs have to keep going back in and replacing the sensor. And so when you do that at home, you get poor signal. And if you get poor signal, how do you um, say that a test is valid? Right. So I think those are the reasons why um, we have decided, the ASM has decided not to recommend home sleep apnea testing less than 18. Mm-hmm. So the results come back uh, on the PSG that you've ordered on Cecilia and um, her PSG with, you know, ETC or entitled CO2 monitoring shows obstructive sleep apnea with an AHI of 21, uh, most prominent during REM sleep and associated with oxygen desaturations to a nadir of 81%. Um, and then there was no sleep related hypoventilation uh, observed. So I guess before we get into the next steps, could you just briefly touch on I guess what the diagnostic criteria is mm -hmm. for um, sleep apnea in the pediatric population, because it's clearly different than, than the adult population. So this would count as severe obstructive sleep apnea. So uh, what we count as AHI or the events per hour, which would be obstructive events, not central. Um, so we take as obstructive apneas and obstructive hypopneas greater than one per hour would be considered as obstructive sleep apnea. So one to five is mild and five to 10 is moderate and greater than 10 is severe. Um, so this child would have severe obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, and for central sleep apnea is, is the same as adult and then hypoventilation is a little different from adults. So it's not the 10 greater than... It's not the 10. It's above 50 for 25% of the total okay. sleep time. That's that's easier than... Yeah, it's easier than the adults. I always have a difficulty in like, it's 10 higher. Alok so. and John had a conversation <laughs> earlier today because yeah. I was yes. reading a study. Bust out the scoring criteria. Yeah. And our bust lawyer out the skills. Exactly. Yeah. Greater I, than I, or equal to 
10 above baseline from the with a value exceeding from, 50. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But not, but exceeding 50. <laughs> right. 50 doesn't count. No. Right. Exceeding 50. Exceeding and, 50, and, and not exceeding or equal to 50. So yeah, that was And then the, you have to have the awake and then, and, and Pete's, and so all the fellows get confused and they're like, please give us awake CO2 wise. I'm like, no, 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 no. And Pete's is very simple. It's above 50 in your sleep. Just go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Cecilia has, I, well, actually, was, is there any other testing you'd do uh, other than the the polysomnogram? Would you order? I mean, is there any lab testing you'd do? Is there anything? Typically, we don't have to do lab testing, but if there is severe obstructive sleep apnea and there hasn't been an echo done, we usually do send them to cardiology. Uh-huh. Um, and this is holds true not just for trisomy 21 children. Um, if there have been children who have severe obstructive sleep apnea and we think it's long standing, just because there is a theoretical risk of pulmonary hypertension, we tend to screen them and gotcha. send them to cardiology okay. or get the echo or however you want to screen them. It's up to you and what your institution is most comfortable with. Do you still see a lot of positional component with these, with the severity of sleep apnea in children? So being worse on the back, like the adults? Supine, right. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Especially if they have a very prominent tongue or if they have a high arch palate or uh, the Piero Ben kids who have a small jaw, significant okay. component. Oh. So getting back to what I was asking before, now we know uh, Cecilia has severe obstructive sleep apnea. So she's four years old. What's the next step in management or what do we do next for her? So typically most people would say tonsils and adenoids evaluation um, and send them to ENT, um, which is considered the first line of treatment. In this population, you always are careful, even if you get a tonsils and adenoid surgery, and this is... um, across the board is to get a repeat sleep study after the tonsils and adenoid surgery. And this is true for any even normal healthy child with moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea after adenotonsillectomy, that you should do a repeat sleep study. Not for mild, but moderate to severe for normal healthy kids. For any child with a syndrome who've had adenotonsillectomy to get a repeat sleep study just because they have multiple sites of obstruction. Mm-hmm. How right how f- how much past like the the TNA do you recommend? Typically, we say um, I think most ENTs would say eight weeks is a good okay. length of time because there's some upper airway inflammation that takes time to settle. Um, we've used two months, so about eight weeks to two months is what we've used as a typical time frame. Um, so ton- tonsillectomy is pretty common to do. Does it matter if it's like a non-obese patient with grade one tonsils, very small, you know? Or is it really three plus that we do it? I mean, because I was reading the literature and I'm like, where's the cutoff? It's, and there is no good. So most people say two plus and higher. Mm -hmm. They're candidates. Mm -hmm. I think there's still some controversial topics. And like, if it's one plus, what do you do? And so, and is it, is it a good idea to go forward for tonsils and adenoid surgery? Some of the ENTs will actually scope and, and then some of them will do sleep endoscopies mm-hmm. um, to see how much tonsils and adenoids would be a site of obstruction or not. And then they'll do a sleep endoscopy and sometimes they'll come back and say, eh, it didn't really look obstructive. Why should we put the child to surgery if we didn't think it was obstructing the airway? Yeah, because I always found these studies difficult when you had like an HI of two. Right, right? Like exactly. So in adults, I'm dealing with the HIs of 30 usually or more. <laughs> right. It's two. The management seems like it seems sometimes it, it's it seems it seemed extreme at the time to be like oh good tonsillectomy and right. 
you know, how what, do you ever just kind of like, yeah, they're small, let's just do a nasal steroid or like, I don't know. Like what, singular. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like we did that or I did that a lot in training that like they had milder sleep apnea. It was just, let's mm-hmm. try singular and flonase for eight to 12 weeks and mm-hmm. then repeat a sleep study. Is that? Exactly. And you can do that. You can use flonase and you, uh, fluticasone or you can use singular. I think it's obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. So you have to kind of remember gotcha. how much daytime symptoms. So if you had a child with an HIV2, but oh my God, the daytime symptoms are horrendous. Mm-hmm. Then you could make an argument for adenotonsillectomy. But if you had a child who's doing really well and you could and you could say, okay, let me try nasal steroids and see what my response is. Right. Um, and we're so, talking non-obese, mild yeah. sleep apnea range mm-hmm. cases with maybe smaller tonsils. That's what we're talking about right. here, right? Okay. Yeah. And and a lot of the ENTs will tell you the same thing is like, let's try nasal steroids. And the other thing was a chat study part of it was in about almost close to 50% of the children, after seven months, you went back and repeated the sleep study in mild OSA and it resolved on its own. Mm. So even in the absence of any kind of intervention, the airway grows. Mm-hmm. So it can get better on its own. So let's say uh, Cecilia, well, we know that Cecilia had an adenotonsillectomy and we're going to get to that. And I'm kind of telling you what's in the future. So jumping ahead <laughs> a bit. But I, let's say hypothetically you had someone with very small tonsils. There was clearly not something there that might benefit from surgery mm-hmm. and severe sleep apnea, worse supine, let's say non-existent lateral. Mm-hmm. And they're four, like Cecilia, four years old. You, you're out of this point between CPAP and positional therapy. Is positional therapy even worth considering in children right. or too difficult to maintain? Would you go, would you go to CPAP at that point? Is CPAP easier. <laughs> four years old. Right. It's always, exactly. I, I have been spectacularly unsuccessful in doing positional therapy. So like the options are out there. You have to be really creative. So none of the traditional ones like the Zoma pillow or the slumber bomb, they're FDA approved. So you're thinking like backpack with the pillow, travel pillow stuffed in or towel yeah. stuffed in. Duct tape. Duck, yeah, yeah, just yeah. duct tape them. Or, or like the horrible ones like, like the tennis balls and yeah. the t-shirt, which no child honestly would sleep in. And the pillows, like trying to use a body pillow, they can very well sleep over the body pillow. Yeah. it's It's been not racist. There are very few children who have taken to positional therapy. Surprisingly, CPAP is actually, or actually BiPAP, it depends on the, where the weight is, right? Because um, CPAP does have its weight limitations, FDA approval for that. Mm. So you can use BiPAP. Um, and the surprising part is the younger, some of the younger kids, thanks to their parents, they actually take to the CPAP or BiPAP pretty well. It's sometimes with the teenagers we have issues with. The the it's it's a challenge. Uh, none of us think that PAP adherence or in children is magic, and we have one of our psychologists who helps a lot with the adherence. Uh, but we have done it, and or some of the children they start the study and they start using it eight to ten hours, and you're like, whoa, you're a poster child. Mm-hmm. It's very, but some of them we, it takes months, and it's literally. You're just holding the mask on their face for 
30 seconds and that's where we start very prolonged desensitization kind of extremely and we we also have the refractory sleep apnea clinic which is very analogous to the adult alternative CPAP clinic where there are other alternatives that are there like is lingual tonsillectomy an option okay. or is hyoid suspension an option option inspire is not ready for prime time in younger um, populations down syndrome it's 10 and higher than i think we are they're doing the studies now right for inspire here actually mm-hmm. they're doing them yep. over at children so so they're doing the uh, there is irb approval for it here it's 10 and older okay um so there are some other options that are coming up um so we do evaluate those children in that clinic have you ever used ervo or heard of ervo we have i've heard of ervo the problem is here it's the insurance approval Okay. Um, What's Airvo? So it's way? basically it's high or high fit or high high f- it's high flow, high flow oxygen. nasal uh, yeah Na- nasal cannula. nasal cannula oh, oxygen okay. or it can be delivered through the trach as well. Okay, it's uh, by Fisher and Pykel. It's so the ones like, who yeah. you're getting 40, 50 liter right, mm-hmm. and so that del- that gets you a positive prep like it just sure. the flow gets just you some f- positive exactly. pressure. Okay. It's almost like high. It's almost like CPAP. The high uh, the high flows almost gives you like stent over. That got me thinking. Our listeners may not know what Inspire is. So it's Inspire, real briefly, is an implantable nerve stimulator that uses electrical stimulation to activate the hypoglossal nerve to treat sleep apnea in adults. Mm-hmm. They still might not. <laughs> <laughs> um, any? Sorry to interrupt the flow. What um, is there an age cutoff for initiating PAP? Is there like at what age is too young to start PAP, or or can anyone can any kid kiddo get get PAP therapy? So I have tried not to go below two years of age. Okay. Um, and the other thing is, what is the weight? All right. um, so there is the BiPAP is 35 pounds. Okay. CPAP is certainly higher is 55 pounds. Um, and then the other thing we have to remember, which we have not had enough studies on, is what happens to the mid-phase growth when mm-hmm. you put masks on younger children, especially if you're using it for 10 or 12 hours what happens to the growth of the mid face, especially with the nasal mass? So I think we we have to be a little cautious, and especially among kids who have neuromuscular disorders or um, they require it. Um, but in normal healthy kids still, you do have to be a little bit cautious on starting mass therapy and when you started and how you started and kind of keeping an eye on their facial growth as well is there do you is there still a role for auto pap or you know is there a limit on how much pressure you guys put them on so the problem with auto pap is adult algorithms Mm -hmm. we've seen some of the outside practitioners use auto pap in kids it's really not uh meant for children because the algorithms are completely adult based Mm -hmm. and so there's under treatment Mm -hmm. of obstructive sleep apnea uh in children um it's not even fda approved but mm-hmm. B, there is significant undertreatment of obstructive sleep apnea. So it doesn't increase the pressure accordingly? Appropriately. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So this patient has an adenotonsillectomy, is monitored post-op in the hospital for 24 hours, does very well. Follow-up call to mom six weeks later reveals that she's, Cecilia is sleeping better, temper tantrums are less frequent. We talked already a little bit about retesting. Uh, we were saying another study in about eight weeks, mm-hmm. roughly. Um, so the, so Cecilia does have the repeat study and she still has OSA. 
but the AHI is now seven and her SATs dropped to 87%. Um, she didn't sleep well during the study. No REM sleep was recorded during about 200 minutes of sleep. The patient was prone or lateral. She slept, uh, uh, but not supine. Um, would you at this point bring the patient back for a treatment study, a titration study? Um, do you think given that information about her repeat study, you would now do CPAP? I think most likely CPAP. Mm -hmm. We have sometimes used oxygen, but the problem with oxygen is twofold. Um, in younger children, you can use it just because the flow almost acts like a stenting the airway open like CPAP. Yeah. Um, but the problem is the older they get, it doesn't seem to have the same effect. The other thing is it can cause higher CO2 values because it takes away some of the drive to breathe. Gotcha. Um, so you have to be very careful about that. Mm -hmm. So ideally you would start with CPAP. If they cannot tolerate it for any reason, then you would consider oxygen as the possible next step. But ideally it would be CPAP Coin or BiPAP. Depending. Oh, okay. Did, I forgot what I was going to ask, oh. Ashley. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll ask ahead. him and yeah, okay. we'll edit that out. <laughs> um, going back to what you said earlier, um, I just, why is BiPAP a lower weight limit than CPAP? Like why, what's the difference or? or I am not hundred percent sure. I think it was, um, they thought it was an easier thing to trigger on the, which is, which is kind of awkward because I think it was just easier maybe to trigger the BiPAP. I'm okay. not hundred percent sure. Okay. I know what I was asked. So we get this with adults all the time. They're just like, mm -hmm. I'm not coming back for another study. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and these are the problems we get, you know, you, you take care of rural patients who live far away mm -hmm. and they're just like, look at, she's mm -hmm. better. She's not snoring now. Mm -hmm. What do you do with that? So a large part. So some of the joys of pediatrics are the children. Some of the, the teaching of pediatrics is the parents. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of, Half our time, I think, is spent on like educating the parents about the downstream effects of untreated obstructive sleep apnea is you may not recognize the effects right now. But at some point when they start having the side effects is we don't know further down a couple of years, are they going to have hypertension? Maybe. Are they going to have insulin resistance? Maybe. Are they going to have neurocognitive deficits? Maybe. And at that point in time, how much of benefit are they going to have from treatment? We don't know. And so the other thing is, you may not also notice all the symptoms of treatment um, of the of obstructive sleep apnea. So rely, being reliant just on the symptoms alone when you didn't notice the symptoms to begin with would not be the best route. But they know their son or daughter. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which we get a lot. I'm sure you, I'm sure you get your hair pulled out a few times <laughs> a, about this because we have that in, in adult medicine. So right. I don't know. It's it's, it's an interesting every day is interesting. Okay. I have to say I've never had a not interesting clinic. <laughs> That's some, a good some, thing. Some more so than others. Yeah. yeah. Um so we know, let's say okay, so we put Cecilia on PAP mm -hmm. and you come back for her first I I forget, do they do compliance visits and kids? Yeah, we, they actually are. So it's interesting. And I, it just, so this part actually does drive me nuts. It's like how insurance companies, and I will go on a rant for hours and get <laughs> on my soapbox, is how insurance companies automatically take adult studies and put them on children. Makes absolutely no sense to me. 
is they started putting Medicare guidelines on adherence to children. That's <laughs> and it's nuts. And if there's yeah. any insurance company out there, I was like, I swear to God, if you have a four-year-old child and you want 70% compliance for four hours, I would like <laughs> to see you try and tell me how it goes and then take away their machine. And please tell me your experience or try it on a developmentally delayed child and expect them to use it. And please tell me how you feel about it. Yeah. And, hey. and I would like to see how how your your home life is blooming at that point in time. Right. It shouldn't apply. <laughs> yeah, it should not apply. Yeah. And it is ridiculous that it applies in any development or even in a normal, healthy four or five year old who has severe obstructive sleep apnea. And you expect that the child is going to use it for four hours, 70 percent of the time. It is downright ridiculous. And then they start calling the parents and saying, well, your child has not been using it. Really? <laughs> yeah. If your child is sleeping at night, I mean, I'm hoping that the parents have to go to work the next day. Or would you like to take the leave their job and just focus on CPAP adherence? Like, I don't know <laughs> what they want them to do. So let's say we get really lucky and she's using <laughs> using PAP eight hours. Yeah. Night, you know, um, and you come back and her residual AHI is one point six. Mm-hmm. From the you know based on on what the machine says, how. How much do we need to get that less than one? What is, is, you know, like in adults, you know, 10 is acceptable, but we really want it less than five. Is there, is there a number for kids that's acceptable, but we try to get it less than one or. I, I don't think I even pay, unless it's like huge numbers on the AHI, I don't think I even pay much attention because is it truly an obstructive AHI? Is it right. a central? Like, is it a phasic? I, I, I don't think I pay much attention okay. to it. Okay. I think I pay, unless sometimes I look at the leak and I look at the H and I see if those really like line up mm-hmm. um, or if they're really high, like five or 10 and there's a huge leak, then I pay attention to it. But if I, if I have a really good titration study, I just go with that. Okay. So I don't, I don't. So really. don't need to pay too much attention right. to the yeah. residual AHI, which may or may not be accurate exactly. to begin with. Yeah. Um, it's already, as we know in, in females, in general, it's less accurate, right? Than in mm-hmm. males doing it. I don't know how it, in, in kids, it probably is less, less accurate yeah. too. So, um, it's a good question. So when, you know, when a machine does get taken away, mm-hmm. you have to restart the whole process, like the adult world too. Yes. Oh, oh the okay. entire thing. And are they scoring by like, you know, uh, arousal based criteria, not the three, not the three and 4% mm-hmm. criteria. It's arousal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Arousal. Yeah. So we should have that going for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so the, here's one of the things. So, which also does not make any sense is an in-lab sleep study. They would rather pay for an in-lab sleep study than rather than let the child keep the CPAP, which I'm sure oh, yeah. is going to be cheaper than an in-lab sleep study. Which that's the old joke of sleep medicine where the treatment costs less than the diagnosis. Right. Exactly. So you are playing for an in-lab sleep study rather than just saying, keep the CPAP, let's try it out a little bit longer. Yeah. Which world does that make sense? I have no idea, but that's my soapbox. And I hope that some insurance company is going to, you're not alone. You're not alone in that. It seems inhumane. I'll I'll tweet this out to Blue Cross Blue Shield. I know. (laughs) So they can listen. And the earlier thing they had, which was also completely ridiculous was, you should have a in-lab titration within 90 days of your baseline. It sometimes takes three months to get into our lab to get. So first you have to get a first baseline, go back and see the ENT. And the ENT says, oh, geez, your tonsils are not big enough. Now I have to put an order for a titration study. And now by the time they get it, oh, my God, your first one is too old. So let's get a repeat baseline. Yeah, I feel like I've run into that before. Yeah. 
It's uh, the paperwork that you love. That's why you're at least with the, <laughs> at least with the, with adults, it's six months. It has to be all done. But mm-hmm. actually, that doesn't make sense that it's three months for kids and six months. Yeah, for ninety days. Now. I don't know how much your airway is going to change in ninety days. Yeah. So, it's, but yeah, it's, some it's the game they play. Yeah, Seems I, it just very doesn't arbitrary. Make any, right. So, uh, side sidebar a bit here from the case. Access is a big problem for mm-hmm. children with sleep disorders. Especially getting a lab study, mm-hmm. a polysomnogram, pediatric polysomnogram. What are your thoughts on that? Is are there is there a good solution to increasing access, you know, in the next five, ten years for children with sleep disorders? Should we have more of a hub and spokes model where it's easier for community sleep docs and PCPs to refer to a place like Mott Children's Hospital for a sleep study with pediatric ex- experts or and that's a good question, and I don't honestly have a good. I think, yes, we should improve access to it. Mm-hmm. I think the problem becomes sometimes, which we've seen is a lot of the sleep physicians in the community, when they do sleep studies in children, which they score them according to the adult criteria, mm-hmm. or they read the sleep studies according to the adult criteria. And so if it's a negative sleep study, is it a truly negative sleep study? It was just underestimated. Right. So ideally, we would like to get all of these kids and all of these children into a more pediatric-based program where you have pediatric-based providers. Um, but we need to train more ped sleep providers. Oh, that would be heaven. <laughs> and, and nighttime techs to do it too. Right, so. exactly. That's, it's, it's like a, yeah. Total it's a, skill right there. Yes. Dealing yep. with children is a, is a whole different ballgame. Yep. yep. Sidebar two. I've always had this question, and I don't know if I've ever got a, a good answer to it. So going back to the, diagno- the diagnostic criteria of AHI of one is sleep apnea. What if you have like a 250-pound, you know, 16-year-old, right? Tanner stage five. Yeah. I mean, so I guess like when can you, like when can you start considering a pediatric patient as an adult and start using adult criteria? Because presumably, let's say you had you know, someone who's 17, they had an AHI of 10, they're on PAP. Then they turn 18. Technically, they don't have sleep apnea anymore because now right. they're an adult. So like, mm-hmm. I, like when can area. you, yeah, right. I guess, is there? A- so I think the ASM lets you decide after 13 if you want to score. Okay. Gotcha. But the, the thing is, I think providers kind of get a little confused. They let you score, but then everything should be according to the adult criteria. I think what people get confused is, when you do it according to the adult criteria, it should be all the way according to the adult criteria. Right. You can't score pick the and choose. Score the hypopnea, score the rara, score everything. You can't yeah. score per the pediatric criteria and decide to read it as the adult criteria. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> so okay. you can't pick and choose which side yeah, you yeah, like. Yeah. You can't like not do the art. You can't say, I will not score the raras because that's not that important. You don't do the RDI in pediatrics. Right. So you're just going to look at the AHI and then completely not do the raras. Um, or the respiratory effort-related arousals. So I, th- I think that's where people get, it's like, they look at the HI. No, look at the RDI. If you're going to score it and read it after the age of 13, then yes, you do have the option, but you can't look at the AHI, score it as a pediatric study, and read it as an adult study. That makes sense. Go yeah. all the way. Yeah. Yeah. All or nothing. All or nothing. <laughs> No 50%. (laughs) That, that, yes, that that answers my question. So thank you. That's a good question. No Uh, 50%, but 50 for 25%. (laughs) 
for the hyper. <laughs> what a look is talking about is the hyperventilation. <laughs> that is, uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Sleep medicine joke. Real niche, real niche, yeah, niche humor. That's a dad. That's a dad joke. Um, I, getting back to the case, um, so I think we said, um, well, I guess with an AHI 1.6, you don't need to do anything. Um, let's say her residual AHI was like five or six and she's still kind of having some symptoms. Would you retitrate or do you start looking at, and your titration looked great, you mm-hmm. know? So you're like, well, this really should work. I don't, you know, she's really having a lot of issues. You, you know, she's done desensitization. She can't do it. Are there, you know, is there a role for like oral appliance in, in the pediatric population or like a mandibular advancement device? I know we touched briefly on Inspire and how um, that age is 10, but is there any any role for any of the other things that we use? Palate expander. Yeah, palate, yeah, palate expander. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the mandibular advancement devices, I think most of the oromaxillofacial surgeons would tell you 16 and older is a more... okay. Optimal age, I think the youngest we've used them is 13, um, just because there can be a change in bite, which is significant. So you and wait some, for the plates to fuse or whatever. Mm-hmm, and then, um, and I think it has to be, and you have to, I, I'm, I'm sure if one of the, one of my oral maxillofacial colleagues hears me, he could skewer me later on. Um, but I think the last <laughs> time I heard was like, you have to follow them every six months to make sure that the bite doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Um, so 13 was the very youngest on a very close observation by them that we had gone. Sure. Um, and this child was unable to use anything else. We did not want to do surgical techniques just because the obstructive sleep apnea was not that significant, at, but daytime uh, symptoms are very prominent. Um and was not able to tolerate CPAP. Um, the rapid maxillary expansion is an option. There are some studies to show that it has helped. Um, and that's before the plates fuse um, and wrap. And it works better if there is high arch palate, obviously. Um, and is there's a certain age for it when you've lost your baby teeth and your permanent molars are in because you need to, to bond to teeth. Mm-hmm. If you're losing your teeth, then there's nothing to bond it to. Yeah. Well, you have to hit, you have to use that early on, like early th- on. You can't, yeah. yeah. It's more like nine to 11 ish uh-huh. that you can mm. use it. Um, there are certain bone bonded ones, but that's not very common, mm. um, but more it's bonded to the teeth. So you need more permanent molars. in. nobody does a U triple P on these kids, right? They do. It's called an expansion pharyngoplasty. Oh, okay. Um, it has been done. It works a little bit better if you're not obese, just like in adults. Um, we have some good success rate. We have a couple of surgeons here who do it, the ENT surgeons, um, and, uh, they've had good success rates with it. So it's one of the surgical options that is there. Okay. Um, we've had, um, mandibular advancements, um, like the distraction, especially if you had a Pierroban kid or there's Mm -hmm. a significantly retrognathic child, we've had that. They've done, um, mandibular advancements in the early infancy period. So. Um, hmm. that has happened. They've done hyoid suspensions. Um, so that's an airlift, right? Airlift. That's not what it was. It is that hyoid suspension? I haven't no. heard it called that, but okay. I'm not that familiar with this. Yeah, I just know either. of it. Yeah. I don't know exactly how they do it. But along the along the lines of monitoring, 
with a patient on CPAP, is there a need for more frequent monitoring by dentistry or someone, you know, else that may have an expertise in the development of the jaw and mid face, et cetera? Or do you monitor the child in the sleep clinic and just have routine dental care, et cetera? As far as the mid phase. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really good point. I don't think the, that we have a good way right now. We hope to in the future, um, but I don't think it's been very well set in stone as to what is a good marker for it. Do you have soft tissue restriction? That's the first step. Or is it the skeletal um, growth that is? Um, we hope to have it. I, I may write a grant in the future for it. Who knows? <laughs> nice. Um, but um, I don't think we have good markers for it right now. Okay. Um, I think sometimes if you get concerned enough, we do involve oral maxillofacial surgery for it because they do do the 3D, the cone beam CTs of the face um, and they can do soft tissue reconstruction and kind of see where we're at. Mm -hmm. um, so we have used that route occasionally. Um, I guess maybe just to wrap up the case and then we can see if there's any uh, other questions we have. Um, so Cecilia's mom um, asks you, Will her sleep apnea go away or is this going to be something that's there for her entire life? Um, could you answer that both as a patient with trisomy 21 and then for a regular pediatric patient who does not have trisomy 1? Mm -hmm. and, and you kind of touched on it earlier as well. So so let's start with the normal healthy patient. So we sometimes will tell the, pa uh, the parents as the child grows older and if it's mild obstructive sleep apnea, as the airway grows, there is a chance that the obstructive sleep apnea may resolve provided they don't gain weight. That's a bit part of it. Um, and so we do caution them on that. Um, as for trisomy 21, we do always tell them that the airway may grow, but this, the problem is the underlying syndrome and the sites of obstruction may still be there. Um, and so there is a high likelihood that they may not grow out of their obstructive sleep apnea. I don't think that's, again, that goes back to my very first couple of statements. I never say never, uh, but there is a high likelihood that they would not grow out of their obstructive sleep apnea. So when like a pediatric patient, would you consider just repeating like someone who's on PAPs, you know, uh, PAP therapy, when would you just consider repeating a PSG, just a regular baseline off of PAP to see if their sleep apnea has resolved? And that's a very tricky answer. So if we think of obstructive sleep apnea not just being a mechanical obstruction, but also like the inflammatory markers being a part of obstructive sleep apnea, if you take them off PAP therapy for one night and you get a negative sleep study, that's, yeah. is it a truly negative sleep study or you've treated them for PAP and there's no upper airway inflammation? Right. And is it? So sometimes what I actually do is if they're completely non-compliant and they've not used PAP for a couple of months and I repeat a baseline, that would be still a little bit better for me. But taking them one night off PAP therapy and having a negative study does not exactly mean that they don't have obstructive sleep apnea. Right, right, yeah. Sometimes I'll take them off for like a couple of months if they really want an honest answer. And I will tell parents that I don't think one night off PAP therapy will tell me one thing one way or the other, if I get a negative study, if I get a positive study, it will tell me something. But if I get a negative study, I don't think that would be the entirely accurate statement. I've seen that a couple of times in the adult 
side too or trying to requalify someone right. to get like a new CPAP device. Mm -hmm. So they require like a retitration or something. Mm -hmm. And so they are a repeat baseline. And then they come in for their baseline. They don't have sleep apnea anymore. Right. And they're like, do I not have this? You're like, no, just don't use your CPAP for a couple days at least. But okay. maybe it is a couple because that residual benefit really is there from, from PAP therapy. So right. that's a good point. Mm -hmm. um, any other questions, you guys? John, hello? No. John, you look like you're thinking I'm trying about to, something. I'm trying to think. <laughs> There's certainly more to this topic, I feel like. but oh, I think we only touched on kind of the... The obstructive the sleep apnea portion. I yeah, think there's yeah. a lot more in pediatrics, right. obviously in pediatrics. And to even go into. In, in PEDS OSA, it's so important. It can have such a dramatic uh, effect, positive effect on a child's quality of life and developmental trajectory. Right. Um, so, yeah, we could easily talk another three hours about it. I think so. Um, <laughs> Which I'm open to. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess, um, Fazi, do you have any like take home points or I guess, you know, Key points when you're, you know, to to let our listeners know in either evaluation or management of of uh, sleep apnea in the pediatric population. I think one thing I always say is if you're concerned about your child's daytime performance, um, that they're falling asleep on on short car rides and they're tired and wired during the day, and you feel like their school performance um, is not up to par in the sense that they're um, not able to pay attention and they have interrupted nighttime sleep and maybe they have symptoms of snoring, talk to your pediatrician and maybe get an evaluation by a sleep, pediatric sleep medicine provider if you can. Um, not everybody who snores has obstructive sleep apnea and not all snoring is what we call pathologic or abnormal. If you snore with a cold or you snore during allergy season does not mean you have obstructive sleep apnea. It has to be what we call habitual snoring. And that's one key important thing. Just don't snore one night of the week and think you'll have obstructive sleep apnea. It has to be at least a couple of nights of the week and most months of the year, if you're going to count that as a symptom. And so I think if you're thinking your child has these things, it's always better to get an evaluation done. You may want to edit this out later, but is there a role for napping in children as far as just healthy sleep? You know, we let mm -hmm. some adults do it on short, you mm -hmm. know, for a short basis and stuff. And I'm familiar with adult data, but I don't have any, don't know, I'm not sure I can. School age children, it's right. okay to take a nap after school. So the younger age, there is certain like right, three or four, they're taking naps and then they give it up naturally. But if you feel like your child is sleep deprived and only is able to take seven hours, get seven hours of sleep overnight because they have to get their homework done and everything, I think it's okay to take a 15, 20 minute nap after they come back home. Not too late, not three, four hour nap, not one to two hour nap, but it's okay to take a 15, 20 minute power nap to kind of get them going. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is appropriate. And sometimes we'll tell them not very often because it does tend to cut into, if they take longer naps, and it does tend to cut into their nighttime sleep habits. But a 15, 20 minute nap before 2 p.m. is an appropriate step to help them combat sleepiness. In the adult population, we see a lot of insomnia caused mm -hmm. by untreated sleep apnea. And we have obviously, we talked about in pediatric, um, you know, disturbed sleep in general. Do you see profound insomnia in children? And what does that make you think of when you do see it? I don't think we see insomnia per se from untreated OS, 
obstructive sleep apnea, I think we see insomnia from a variety of other factors. Parents' fault. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> limit, limit, limit setting, right? That's what I, that's what I learned. <laughs> so I think the other part is like the behavioral insomnia of childhood is that it's limit setting or whether you're the one present in the room when your child is going to sleep. And if they wake up in the middle of the night, then obviously they want you there. You're their pillow. Insomnia due to a parent condition. You know, yeah. th- this might be an entire other podcast if we mm-hmm. talked about infant sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, as a for, I'm a parent and I'm going to say former parent. Former parent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be a former parent. Uh, that's a bad situation, yeah. but we'll edit this out. I hope uh, the point being is that that might be another topic we talk I think about. So. I just, future. I mean, our daughter is now 18 months, so it's definitely You're, something that we pulled our hair about, you yeah. know, in she was born during training and I would always ask, I was like, is this normal? And you know, you know it, but it's I, when it's your kid, it's I, always like, I, I just realized I'm deviating the conversation into this insomnia thing at the end of this episode. That's okay. That's an entire another episode. So now we have a reason to get you back on. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, I think that'd be great. um, So let's wrap it up for today. Um, Fazia, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. And um, thank you for listening. Uh, Again, show notes will be available on the podcast and at the website. It's www.thewhitenoisepodcast.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at questions at thewhitenoisepodcast.com. Thank you very much. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you.